0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Nashi, CEO of Seek AI, a generative AI for data platform that's raised $7.5 million in funding. Sarah, thanks for chatting with me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Brett. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background?
1: Sure. So I am one of the founders and the CEO of a startup called Seek AI. We're a little over a year and a half old, And we're building a natural language interface that anyone in a business can use to ask questions about data and get the data that they need much faster, not waiting a few weeks for the data team. I come from a data science background, so we're solving a pain point that I experienced pretty much everywhere I worked. So yeah, that's just a little bit about myself and Seek. Happy to go more into my background in more detail as well, if you like. Where did the passion for data come from? Yeah. Great question. That goes way back. So I was always kind of one of those people in high school that was pretty well-rounded. I was a theater kid. I was uh, on the varsity golf team. Um, (laughs) I was uh, playing competitive classical pianist and was just doing a bunch of different honors classes, kind of like an honors kid. And so I was always just kind of good at math, And I noticed that was an area that a lot of people struggled, but I was just found, you know, something I didn't have a lot of trouble with. And then I I learned about financial services. You know, I was this was the year like 2006. I was a junior in high school and I heard about investment banking. That was actually the hot profession back then, at least to my knowledge. So I just learned how you do have to be good with numbers to do something like that. And I was like, you know, I'm good with numbers. Maybe I'll check out a career in finance. So when I started college, I actually just started out as a business economics major. I went to UCLA. And after a couple of years, I had actually just finished the major. So I kind of just needed something to fill out the remaining two years. So I just was like, you know, I'm pretty interested in just the meaning of life and all that stuff. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do astrophysics. So I did that kind of the second two years, kind of squeezed that in there. And by that time I had just been exposed enough to kind of astrophysics and finance. And I learned about this thing called quantitative finance. And I thought it sounded really cool because it was really hardcore math for finance. And it was kind of a combination of the two majors I just happened to choose kind of coincidentally. So I started out as a quant. That's when I moved to the East Coast. I went through a program at Princeton called the Masters in Finance, or rather Master in Finance, which is just to train quants coming from STEM backgrounds, basically. And so anyway, that's a really long winded background. But That's kind of how I got my start as a quant on Wall Street. And then around 2013, 2014, I learned about this thing called machine learning and data science. And I know it sounds crazy now, but back in 2013, 2014, data science was only just starting to become a phrase. Even machine learning wasn't really that widely used of a phrase in 2011, 2012. And so I started learning about data science. You know, big data was another buzzword at the time. And I did make another slight career pivot to becoming a data scientist, which to me, it just was this new profession. I thought big data was super cool. And just as a quant, I was like, there is a lot of alpha kind of hidden in all this big data that you can now work with. So that kind of became my focus towards the end of my career. Was working with large data sets, basically trying to discover new trading ideas by finding alpha in various data sets, some of them kind of unusual. So, yeah, that was my journey towards working with data.
0: And what was it like for you when you left Citadel and decided to start your own thing? Was that a scary time for you? Did you just have full confidence that it was going to work? Did your friends and family think you were crazy? What was going on at that time period in your life?
1: Well, looking back, I am pretty happy with the decision making process that I used. I did work at a couple of startups in between my time as a quant at a trading firm called ITG and Citadel. I worked at a couple of B2B SaaS startups in between, which were both in financial services. So I never left financial services, just worked at these two startups. And I had always been interested in startups, been interested in entrepreneurship. And my experience at these startups was, you know, I got to spend some time working fairly closely with the CEOs of both startups. Side note, they're both now investors and advisors in Zeek, Michael Berner and Jim Shin, founders of Edison Software and Predata. So yeah, I got a chance to kind of watch these CEOs build these companies. And it was always very interesting to me. And then You know, at Citadel, I basically just happened to see this thing come out in 2020 called GPT-3. And I had actually been following the gpt models since 2019. So I remember seeing GPT-2 in 2019. And I actually played around with GPT-2. And then I saw GPT-3 and I was just like, wow, this is so much better than GPT-2. Like this thing can actually write code. It can write SQL code. It can write Python code. And I just hadn't really seen that with GPC2. So I just kind of saw how much better these models were getting and how it's just like, there is something here. Like these models are going to change everything. So it was really just my strong belief that these models were going to be transformative that led me to quit my job at Citadel. And that was in 2021. In uh, the first half of the year. And when I quit my job, just I think you asked, you know, what was my conversation like with friends and family? I had a friend, one of my best friends. She was making a career transition. And I remember she did a poll. She's also a data scientist. So she used kind of a data driven approach of calling her friends and family and just asking them their thoughts, you know, should I quit my job or not? And using that to influence her decision. So I actually copied her and I did the exact same thing with my friends and family. I just called them one by one and just asked them, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job and starting a startup in the AI space. You know, what do you think? And the reactions were generally not positive. (laughs) Like, I didn't really have any friends or family that I can remember with maybe one or two exceptions. You know, I will credit my uncle who was extremely positive and supportive, but he was kind of an outlier. You know, most of my friends and family were kind of supportive, but at the same time, just like, well, you know, most startups fail, right? So, you know, I really don't believe that you're likely to succeed. So if I were you, I wouldn't do it. But if you do it, I'll be supportive of you. That was kind of the consensus, And so I obviously ended up not taking the advice of the consensus, but I think it was kind of helpful to have anyway. So that was a little bit about my process when it came to quitting my job and starting. And also I didn't really know I was necessarily gonna start a startup. I didn't really know what it was gonna be when I quit my job. It was just more, I had a very strong directional hypothesis about AI. And that's just what led me to quit my job. And I just was like, I'll just figure it out from here. So that was more of the process.
0: In a couple of other questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what CEO or founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them?
1: It's a hard question because I'm kind of the type of person that follows a bunch of founders and CEOs. And I tend to be pretty easily inspired by people in general. So it's hard to think of just one. But I mean, it's pretty hard to argue against Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA and the founder. I mean, he's just incredible. He's a founder that just stuck with the company for decades and never gave up and grew it to be the company we're hearing in the news about all the time, even this week with the trillion dollar market cap. So it's really hard to argue founder wise with that. I will also say I followed Snowflake's success very closely. I mean, that was, in many categories, the most successful IPO of all time. And Bob Muglia is someone that I've definitely studied his work building Snowflake as a CEO that joined when they were still in stealth and grew it to be at the point where it IPO'd shortly after. And, you know, that's another CEO that, I really look up to who's also in Sikhs space, you know, modern day sex space. So those are just a couple of examples, but I could go on and on for hours about others as well.
0: And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you?
1: Yeah, again, I guess I just don't like giving one answer or it's hard. But I would say just one book looking back when I was growing up. I was really really into Michael Crichton books. Like I was pretty into sci-fi in general. And I remember being a little bit obsessed with this book called Sphere. It's just about these people, I don't know if you're familiar with it, is going in a submarine underwater and just strange things happen. But I always thought that was a really cool book for some reason. I would also say just business book-wise, for some reason I've always liked Sun Tzu. I've read The Art of War probably a couple times over, and I just really like it. I like the simplicity of the book. It's just one of the classics. So those are a couple books that I can think of.
0: Nice. Super interesting. Now, let's dive a bit deeper into the product. So I think you touched on it a little bit there at the start of the interview, but could you just take us a bit deeper and just give us the overview of what the product really does and, and what the features are and the capabilities are?
1: Yeah. So like I said earlier on... What we're building is a natural language interface that you just ask questions to it, and it can answer questions you have about data that you'd normally ask the data team. So, what does the product look like? It's very, very simple. One of the first reactions we get when we show the product to prospective customers, they're just like, "Wow, this is so easy to understand." Basically, if you can use ChatGPT, you can use Seek. You just go in. Ask it questions and it'll get data for you. Something I will point out is we have two types of users: business users, which is kind of catch-all term, meaning non-technical people in a business. For example, it could be customer success, could be sales, could be product. These are roles, oftentimes non-technical, that need data to perform their jobs, and so they're typically waiting. You know, we've seen customers waiting two months even, or more, just for the data team to help them pull certain types of data sets. It often involves writing SQL code or Python code, and because of the amount of work, and it's very manual work that goes into answering these questions, the data team just gets kind of bottlenecked with all these questions from everyone in the business. So that's why it can take some time to get answers back, and we're also a product for the data team for that reason. We also plug into the data team and allow them visibility into the questions that are being asked. And the the most important piece that drives all of this is AI. We are in the generative AI space because we're working with large language models to generate code to query data. And so you can kind of think of us as also being a collaborative tool where you have business users, you have the data team, and at the heart of it, you have AI that is also like a collaborator. The last thing I'll say is the goal of the company is to allow our customers to get more ROI on their data. That's our reason for existence. Right now, companies invest so much money in things like the modern data stack. And what is it exactly? It's a giant warehouse where you put all your data into it and you have other layers of the stack where you can transform the data, ingest data, visualize the data. And what is the purpose of this all? What are companies trying to get out of their investment? It's insights. At the end of the day, this is not a very flashy thing to say, but I mean, it is business intelligence making businesses smarter because of the data that they're working with. And what's pretty interesting is you can think of each insight from the data as like a little piece of ROI (laughs) on the data. And so most of the insights are just buried right now. The only way to access them is to ask a data person. And it's just kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. The only way to access this information and this ROI, you have to go through a human and oftentimes that human really doesn't want to help you. Like they have their own projects. <laughs> you know, that, that was my pain point when I was a data scientist. I was just like, like I said in the beginning, I want to be going through the data, finding alpha and helping the business trade on it. You know, I don't necessarily want to be just answering people's questions about the data. So when I described my pain point, this was it experiencing a very inefficient process of extracting the value that the, a business is supposed to be getting from the data. So that is seeks reason for existence.
0: And what's the split between users that are you know general business users, non-data folks, and then the data science folks? Is it like a, a 50-50 split or what does that look like?
1: No, it's actually definitely not a 50-50 split. I mean, data teams make up only a small part of a business. For example, we regularly encounter businesses that are maybe Series C stage, Series D stage. Maybe they have like 100 or 200 people and only five people on the data team. So it's a very small fraction, typically, of the organization. And yet the data team has to help everybody in the business access the data, which makes this such an interesting problem to solve.
0: Are there any data science teams that view this as a threat or something that could replace them, you know, like them being there to answer those questions? Does that like validate their existence in the organization and and prove their worth that they're able to answer questions? Or is that not how they think about this?
1: I would say we don't see it that much. We don't see that reaction. I think the reason for that is most data scientists. And when I say data scientist, what I really mean is you know, data scientist is one type of data person, but you also have data analysts, analytics engineers. These are all the type of people on average that they're not really the type of people that are like, I love waking up in the morning and just crafting a nice SQL query. You know, we do find people like that from time to time, but that's not really the average. The average looks more like someone who's kind of like me. You know, they've always been Good at numbers, interested in numbers, just kind of curious about oftentimes they come from a STEM background or they've done a master's in data science or just studied data science in undergrad. They're kind of just curious about data. (laughs) And so these are the type of people who, in general, are excited about new technology, especially if it can just remove manual work from their plate. You know, if we can remove manual work, it means they can work on projects that got them into their career path in the first place. And these are projects that can add so much more value to the business than the manual work that Seek is automating. Just going back to my own personal experience, for example, if I could have had two or three more hours every day to just focus and explore data and discover alpha you know that alpha would have been worth at least tens of millions to some of the businesses i worked at versus you know the value of helping business users with questions like i said it is certainly one of the most valuable applications of the data but to the data team it's actually not the area that they can add the most roi it can add even additional roi on top of all of the roi we can give to the business users And what are some of the most
0: common questions that a business user would ask?
1: Well, I'll give you an example. Oftentimes, some questions are about data that as a business user, you may have never seen before. We had a customer success person who was and is a heavy user of the product and one of our earliest users. I still remember seeing this happen where he had a question about customer invoices. So the CFO of the company sent a memo to everyone in the business saying an unusual number of customers are running late on their invoices. And this customer success rep saw the memo and was like, okay, I better check which of my customers are late on their invoices. You know, I have a feeling they may churn at some point. And he'd never needed to see this kind of data before. And it would have required just finding the right person on the finance team, filling out a ticket for that person, and then just waiting perhaps two weeks or more to get an answer back. And so that's the kind of application where he actually used Seek to answer this question and he was able to get the data back and just reach out to the customers and take action by you know, taking certain actions to prevent them from churning. That's an example of
0: And can you talk to us about your first early customers, your early paying customers, and just walk us through you know what that was like acquiring those first paying users? Because that's always the hard part for any startup business. How do you get people to give you money when you're so new?
1: It's an interesting story for me because <laughs> I come from a data background. That was my life before starting Seek. I had a little bit of sales experience. Sometimes I would go on to sales calls, especially when I was at the startups I was at, but, you know, I was never leading sales. I was only supporting. So I really didn't know anything about sales. And because of that, it's really interesting to talk about just what I learned. Um, (laughs) Like, I remember when I was starting out with Seek, this was Q4 2021. I had some early, early users of a very basic prototype that I had built. But these users kept requesting features. And I started to feel a little overwhelmed being like, I'm getting all these feature requests, but you know, I, I really don't have much to show for this. You know, I, I don't really have any proof, you know, that people want to pay for this. And so I asked around and some advice I got was, Sarah, what you need to do is prove that this is something people want to pay for. So what you need to do is stop building features for free and ask these people, hey, can you please sign something that shows you would actually pay for this? So I still remember that moment was one of the most just mind blowing moments just in my career with Seek. I don't know why it just that had never occurred to me. And so what I did was, you know, I went back to some of the early users and was like, hey, can you sign this thing called a letter of intent? You know, it's non-binding. There's really no obligation. It'll just help me prove that this is something you would actually pay for. And they did. You know, I got those contracts signed. And so that was the beginning of me starting to actually prove out that people were willing to pay for Seek. And, you know, the LOIs converted into paying customers as well. And so that's how we ended up getting our first paid customers. So that's really how it evolved. And what about your
0: messaging? Because when I go to the website now, it's just very clear what you do. And I walk away, you know, not scratching my head, trying to figure out what it is exactly that you can do and the value that you can bring. Was it always that clear and crisp? Or did it take some time for you to really narrow down that messaging?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny because there are some investors I talk with now. And they actually think that Seek pivoted. (laughs) Uh, You know, they'll tell me like, Sarah, I saw Seek's pivot. You know, great choice or something. And I'm just like, no, you know, we've been doing the same thing for basically a year and a half. I mean, the goal really hasn't changed. It is the messaging that has changed. I'll give you a couple of examples. So when I was starting Seek out, I knew the pain point really well from my perspective, which was the data person perspective. So I was angling seek more as just solve some of this frustration you have as a data scientist, let AI do some of this work for you, that kind of messaging. But as we talked with more and more customers, that's really when I started to realize the ROI aspect of the product And I just started to realize that's where a lot more of the ROI comes from. Like I mentioned before, there are different sources of ROI. Like there is ROI that only the data team can provide. And that is actually some of the most powerful ROI. But then there is also the ROI that comes from these questions from business side as well. And we we just started to realize like the business users aren't just asking these questions to be annoying. They need this data. And for me as a data scientist, I was so focused on my own work, I didn't really stop and think as much, You know, how are the business users feeling about any of this? And the more I talked with them, the more I was like, wow, their pain is just as important and they can't even do their job without waiting for the data team to help them with this work. So I think our messaging has become clearer to the business users. And we've also gotten just a lot more clarity on who exactly the users are And we're at a point where we can actually have case studies on our website. So I do think talking to customers, you know, every customer we talk to, we get a little more clarity on this kind of messaging.
0: And what about positioning? How are you positioned in the marketplace? And and what's that competitive landscape look like?
1: Yeah. So I, I think when you say positioning, you know, the way I would answer that is we think in terms of the modern data stack, because at the end of the day, Seek is a platform for working with structured data that is stored in some sort of cloud data warehouse. So we think of ourselves as part of the modern data stack. We like to think of Seek as almost like an AI layer on top of the modern data stack. So traditionally, people think of the modern data stack as four layers. We have your data warehouse. We have your ingestion layer, which is you know, Fivetran, Airbyte, Portable. We have your transformation layer, so your DBT. And then we have visualization, that's Looker, Tableau. Seek is kind of like a fifth layer, the AI layer. That's where you can go to ask questions. You know, people have a lot of questions about, especially when it comes to things in the visualization layer, that you're a business user. You might see a dashboard and be like, This is really interesting. I have five more questions and you don't really have anywhere to go. You kind of have to just go to your data person. And so that's where Seek comes in to fill that gap that's kind of missing right now.
0: And for that fifth layer, how do you describe that as like a market category? Do you have a market category that you're defining here or you're calling here? Or how do you think about market category?
1: That really comes from talking to customers. When we were starting out, we weren't sure if customers were going to see us as business intelligence or something else. But it became clear that customers see us as a fifth layer. You know, before the phrase generative AI, which really only emerged in Q4 last year, we were calling ourselves more just AI software, you know, a new category of working with data. On our website now, it says generative AI for data. And that's a very, you know, it doesn't really touch as much on the natural language interface idea, but it is a good way to describe the category that we're in. We're generative AI. That is a completely new category of software that didn't exist. That phrase literally didn't exist a year ago, to my knowledge. So that is a new category. And then we're not just generative AI. We're applying it towards working with structured data. So that's kind of how we arrived at this phrase, generative AI for data. To be honest, you know, all these phrases are changing so much. So, you know, don't be surprised if we have a different name a few months from now, but that is how you could describe the category that we're in right now. And for you, what did
0: it feel like in Q4? I think it was maybe like November with Chat GPT when everyone on the internet just started you know doing their screenshots of the prompts. My mom was asking me about it. Yeah, it really seemed to just blow up and become massive. So I have to imagine that
1: was an exciting time for you. Yeah. I mean, looking back, it was insane. <laughs> it was absolutely insane. Yeah, it's very interesting because we were actually fundraising at the time. And I don't know if you remember this, but in 2022, especially the second half of the year, people were saying, uh-oh, funding is drying up. You know, 2021 was the peak of funding. You know, I saw I saw founders just trying to conserve capital. You know, we still see that, obviously, this year, too. But the fundraising landscape looked a certain way for us in the first half of Q4. And then when ChatGPT came out, everything changed. I think something that was really cool that happened is that all of a sudden, a lot more people just understood what it was we did. Like 2021, I just remember almost no one understood what I was building. Like I would try to explain to people, but there was just too much going on. You know, it's hard enough to even explain to people what a data scientist does if you're not a data scientist. You know, then on top of it, I was talking about like, oh, there's these giant models and the models can write code. And, you know, people were just like, what are you talking about? So I'm so grateful for ChatGPT because it's just people tried it out and they got it instantly. And then I was just like, hey, you know, we're not that different from ChatGPT. Just we can help you work with the data in your data warehouse. And people really got that in larger amounts. However, what I will say is the investors that have invested in Seek, pretty much all of our investors, were the exception. You know, these were all people that were investing in what we now call generative AI before it was called generative AI. So they knew what was up even before ChatGPT. In particular, you know, I'll call out Sarah Gua from Conviction. And then, you know, the folks at Battery Ventures, they actually... I think we had discussed their seed investment really before this hype cycle. You know, so we announced our seed funding in January. And so they've always been very, very smart about AI and definitely ahead of the curve.
0: And with this hype cycle, I'm sure it brought massive customer demand, but it's also probably created some competitors, I would have to imagine, or at least just a lot of tools that are battling for the attention of data teams. So what are you doing right now to rise above all of that noise?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, to your point, it's pretty easy to just build with the chat GPT or GPT-4 API. The barriers to entry to building with generative AI are quite low. And that is very interesting because with just vanilla chat GPT, with GPT-4 or 3.5, you can just generate SQL. You know, you can generate Python. So how do we compete with someone just building a thin wrapper around these tools? And this is why I think it's good to be solving a hard problem. If it was an easy problem where just all of the value is added by just pure chat GPT, that's a use case where you could just build a wrapper around it and kind of call it a day, right? But for example, like write my essay for me and you're targeting high school students. You know, I don't know if such an app exists, but it probably does. That's just an example of something that ChatGPT can do really well. And so, if you built a thin wrapper around it, you could also do it really well in your app. But you'd also have a lot of trouble, I think, distinguishing yourself because ChatGPT is already so good. With things like querying data, it's still a hard problem that ChatGPT can't solve all on its own. The reason for that is a lot of things. One of the biggest things is that no one has clean data. So how are you gonna, you know, connect Chat GPT to your warehouse if it doesn't have clean data or properly labeled data? That's one challenge. Another challenge is that there's so much data. How do you fit it all into the prompt? And I think another thing is just all the domain knowledge that you need to work with this data. And then simply the fact that these models can hallucinate. How do you deal with? the hallucination aspect, you've got to generate a precise result. How do you generate something precise with a generative model that can hallucinate? These are all very, very tough problems to solve. I've heard people call the problem that we're solving almost an AI-complete problem. And so because of all this, it's an opportunity, right? It's whoever can actually you know, get this stuff to be valuable for querying data today those are the companies that are gonna win. And so what we've done at Seek is develop something we call the Seek workflow. And this is kind of what I described earlier. It's a collaborative platform between business users, the data team, and AI. And by making it collaborative, and we also have a patent pending for you know this specific workflow. This is our solution to some of these problems, And it's something that I think we've solved in the most intelligent way so that we can actually start bringing value to our customers before anyone else. And final question, since we're almost up on time here, can you just paint a picture for
0: us for what that next three to five years is going to look like and and what your high-level vision is?
1: Sure. Well, I would say at a high level, our goal for a long time is just going to be to be really, really good at helping business users get ROI from their data warehouse. Like I said, that's a tough problem. And so for us to just continue to get better and better at that is our biggest priority right now. However, in the future, there are a lot of things that we can do. For example, supporting more types of languages, more types of data, and also solving more and more complex problems. For example... You know, everybody kind of knows about some of the basic questions. We have some of them on the website. You know, even the example I gave, like what percent of our customers are are late on their invoices. These are questions that, you know, they can be phrased as questions where you get data back. But what if you have more complex questions like that are more strategic even, you know, should we build a new store in this state where you might need an entire report? I used to think of this as the three to five year vision, but I actually think the time is sooner (laughs) that we can answer these more strategic questions. So that's probably more like a shorter term vision. But in the longer term, it's just about getting better and better at doing this. So that would be my answer for the longer term.
0: Amazing. I love it. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go?
1: Yeah, so you can follow us on LinkedIn. It's just LinkedIn.com forward slash company forward slash Seek AI, S-E-E-K-A-I. You can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is it's Sarah R. Nagy, S-A-R-A-H-R-N-A-G-Y or CKI is just AI underscore Seek. You can also uh, email me. It's just Sarah at Seek.AI. That's how you can contact us.
0: Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on, talking about what you're building and sharing some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. I really enjoyed this interview and wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision.
1: Yeah, thank you so much again, Brad. This is such a fun conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks again.
0: Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch.